Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 58, Menus and Ephemera. We'll be taking you back in time and talking a little bit about more menus. That was a really popular subject, uh, oh my goodness, two years ago or so. Maybe that we did some restaurant menus. We'll get to that in a second. And uh, sitting in with me tonight for this episode, as always, coming in from Ohio, Mr. JT Couser. How are you doing tonight, JT? Doing good. We had a scorcher today. Scorcher. It's like the past few days, actually. It's been 90, so it's a nice change. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's about it. There's nothing really going on, you know, except uh, coming off our live streams and that sort of thing. It's good to be back in the episode saddle. Yeah, it is. We need to get back in this uh, in, in this mode here, producing some podcasts. We certainly did a lot of video over the past uh, two months or so. For those listeners that enjoyed uh, Home Movie Night, we are going to do it uh, sporadically now and then. We'll probably hit one or two in June, and then maybe as we have a big release, we'll bring it out to the general public to see and take a look. All right. Also, coming in from Tampa, Florida, he's digging, he's rummaging, he's looking for something. It look, looks like a tiki there on, the, on your thing there, Hal, but uh, Mr. Hal Bowers. Aloha. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. How's it? Are you that liquid luau guy I keep seeing in my YouTube feed? <laughs> <laughs> you look really familiar. He does look That's familiar. It's my, it's my Hannah Montana-ish secret double life. Yeah. Can you make a very low-class drink the next one? Because every time I want to make one, I'm missing two or three of those ingredients. And... Really? Like, yeah. We'll do uh, Jack and Coke. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mountain Dew and something else. Oh. <laughs> All right, and on that note, with menus in hand, Mr. Brian P. Miles coming in from Philadelphia this evening. How are you doing tonight, Brian? Greetings and salutations from the equally hot and steamy town of Philadelphia. Yes. That we've, We were in the high 80s today as well, and Pennsylvania is at least my portion of Pennsylvania, which is the last to slowly start to reopen. Uh, so it was nice to get out and about a bit today. And tomorrow, I think I'm actually going to get in a pool, even though all of the public and club pools are closed. I talked to a friend of mine today who has an oasis in their backyard, and I said, I think I might come tomorrow after work. And JT, stay tuned, because uh, we're going to talk about the Country Club cocktail tonight, and I guarantee you, you can make it at home. Okay. That's perfect. Remind me, I have a good story from our most recent trip about Country Club cocktails, so... Why Same can't you chance. tell us now? Because <laughs> it relates to your drink. I'm all right. right. Very right good. Topic, Very so. good. That works. That works. All right. Well, last month, uh, we went back and sailed the River of Time. Thanks to Howe and all the effort he put into researching that. We released some videos of, uh, of that how you took. And um, 
Uh, we got a, another video in of Sailing the River of Time from a, from a listener along with, wow, I, I, 25 gigs of other uh, other videos and attractions and everything. So we're going to get that out there. Uh, but how I, I, I think you did a good job because we didn't get any comments and corrections. So I think you I think you struck 100 percent on this one. Wow. I was expecting at least three or four corrections of my pronunciation. If nothing else. <laughs> so, well, for all the linguists out there, we can have them then. Uh, go over that again and bring that up but uh jt i'll pass it over to you to the mailbag yeah uh bear with me here because i've got a lot to sift through uh yeah sweating in the mailroom today so first one we have is from mark uh cowet mark cowet he says i found your podcast about a year ago and i've been slowly listening to each one starting at number one and i'm almost up to the latest one To be honest, I'm not looking forward to catching up as I don't want to have to wait a month for the newest one. Uh, I'd like to say thank you for providing such a great product for us who really enjoy Walt Disney World. My first trip was in 1976, and I've enjoyed each of the dozen or so times that I've been able to go. My off time is spent listening to podcasts, reading books, uh, and various videos. I have a question that I wonder if you know the answer to. And here we go. Let's stump the experts here. What does Disney World do with the Wedway People Mover when they need to store it. I, and I was thinking about it's like, oh, it's like a big centipede out there, like where I, I know, so I know there's several buildings. He didn't say the thing about the centipede. I just did. I just <laughs> add words to your mouth, Mark. Uh, he said, I know there's several buildings that it goes through that are covered, but I never heard on what the cast members do with it if they need to protect it. Thanks again, Mark. Well, I believe in how, correct me if I'm wrong, they're off the side of Space Mountain, aren't they? Uh, yeah, officially there is a, a maintenance bay that runs along the outside perimeter of Space Mountain. And now I've never counted to see whether or not all of the cars would actually fit in that spot. Yeah. But that is the designated area. Uh, I think at night they just kind of stop wherever. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm tr- I, I can't recall ever seeing... Uh, and you know, during the day when they're supposed to be operating, they stop whenever <laughs> a lot of the times. <laughs> That's a, yeah, I mean... How, what what's the length of a, of a people mover car? Do we know? Well, the same well, ratio as leprechauns to unicorns. Ah, perfect. This is where you get on Google Earth, find out the length, <laughs> and then you start measuring now with the little. Well, mover. it's got a little covering it's, uh, on it. Though. How's I got can't... the manual? I go. Let me uh, let me see, go. He's got we're gonna do, we're gonna, let me see if I happen to have that information. All right, you do that. I'm straight. gonna measure the circumference. This is, this is what know. we do for you, Mark. That's right. This is the. There's a just so happens there there's actually a storage track console where you can control uh control the people mover from from over there uh so as you, you bring it in you bring it oh, around so i see like it is secondary. literally so it is about uh two-thirds of the circumference of space mountain is this is the place where you could store stuff the parking okay. lot so space now you'd have to now you'd have to get them all backed in, you know, back to back to back to back, which it normally would not allow you to do that, right? Because it always wants to maintain a certain amount of space between them. But in theory, in a hurricane, I bet they could probably move them all back there. All right, so let's that is interesting. let's use some math here, so that if we measure Space Mountain, the diameter. This is a fact I don't even know if anybody's done before them, except okay. the engineers. The diameter is let's call it 325 feet. Right. So to get the circumference of a circle, uh, let's see what we have to do. Is it pi, it's pi uh, pi r square uh, two pi r, right? 
So <laughs> he no. said right. Yeah, two pi, two pi r. Yes, you're right. Exactly. Okay. So if our radius is, uh, is is half of the diameter, so three and twenty-five divided by two would give us one hundred and sixty-two point five. That gives us a circumference of one thousand twenty-one feet. And how you said it's about seventy-five of that, seventy-five percent. Yeah, roughly. I'll tell you, oh, Harry, the storage track inside Space Mountain covers 789 feet. Sorry to <laughs> ruin all your math there. Jeez, yeah, you know, you could... Just, you gotta leave all this in, because he just burst your Well, it was 77%, so it was... It was a, it's yeah, a... I mean, let's work it out. Let's work it's it out. close, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's pretty track. close. Okay, so 700 feet, We don't, how, many, how many cars do the people mover have? So, between 19 and 32 depending, I guess, on what they're running on any given day. Now, wait, and is that, a, how many, is that, like, with the, the two seats, or is that four, technically, four benches? Uh, five, five cars per train. Oh, oh, okay. So okay. how many, so up to how many? Up to 32. That's, that's trains or cars? Trains. Oh. And that's a, each train is 41.75 feet long. So 32 times, 32 trains times, what was the length there? 41. 41.75 brings us to 1336 so we are over by almost double got half sticking out so they can't <laughs> they can't all fit in the maintenance bay huh. look at that solving the problems math one math mark uh, so now we reach out to a cast member and I'm, I'm hoping or assuming we'll get an answer that's just we don't really care we just stop the ride and they just sit there I mean, yeah. I mean, the the track is mostly covered, right? So there's the yeah, the, right. It's not really not exposed to the element. I guess the question is, now's the time to find out. <laughs> they have Where have they been? That's true. So if we have any security uh, force members out there, we somebody did an overhead. You know, the flyovers recently. Right. We, we did find oh. a reconstruct yes. to uh, fly over and see if he can locate where all the trains are. So thank you, Mark, for that. As you see, uh, you know, we wanted to obviously give you your first write-in, uh, being a new fan, slowly catching up a, a solid answer on that one. So right now it looks like half fit under a covered storage and the rest just sort of hanging no man's land. So next up is from Holly. Holly says, hello from Missouri. Hey, Holly. Uh, hey. Hello. I'm from Missouri. Show me. The Show Me State. That's right. I just wanted to thank you for your wonderful podcast. I discovered it recently after searching for something to listen to while I sewed masks for our local hospital. Well, that was nice of you, Holly. I'm sure they appreciated that. How uh, big really... How big of a mask do you need to make to fit on a hospital? <laughs> Pretty big. It's like those termite tarps, you know, when they have this exterminator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looks like a circus tent then. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's rewarding work, but very tedious. Many hours and a few hundred masks later, I'm hooked. I grew up in Southern California, had many visits to Disneyland as a kid. I even worked there in college, but I didn't get a chance to visit Walt Disney World until after I was married in 2007. I instantly fell in love with, as I lovingly described, the world's old bones, traces of the parks as they were in the 70s and 80s. I could wander around places like Future Word and the World and the Polynesian for hours just taking it all in. It's so fun to learn more about what I miss, and I've been taking notes for our next trip. Thank you again for hours of enjoyment. Well, that's awesome, Holly, and uh, hopefully our notes or uh, the notes you're taking are definitely uh, going to be helpful on your next trip. Next up, this is another uh, Stump the Experts here. This is from William Walker. 
He says, curious if you have any information on the history of Mickey's retreat on Little Lake Bryan. Well, how you want to start with this one? Well, well first, I mean, I first question is, have you ever been there, Hal? I have not ever uh-huh. been there. I know where I know where it is. Yeah, I, I know where it is. I, I see it on Google Maps a lot, but no, I have I have never been. Uh, I don't know what the story about Mickey's retreat is. I, I know Little Lake Bryan was one of the original recreational areas that was set up for cast members way way back in the seventies, and they've had very you know a lot of events there over the over the years. Swimming, I think they probably could do water skiing there and a bunch of other recreational stuff. So. Uh, but I don't know about that particular event. Um, Mickey's retreat, I think, is the um, is the uh, what like clubhouse thing that you call there, right? I mean, where they have the bathroom and the changing rooms, and prob- I'm guessing some kind of snack bar. But there's like a picnic pavilion there, and uh, I I know most of it from various Snapchats and Insta stories from cast members that I follow um, who occasionally use it, and and I've seen. You know, there's some neat Mickey Mickey and Disney character theme signs and stuff around them. There's a beach there. I don't know if they still swim in the lake, um, but obviously for a long time that was a big that was a big deal with swimming in the lake. And they may have stopped the swimming in the lake the same time they stopped it at Bay Lake and Seven Seas Lagoon back in 2001. So, um, but no, since none of us have been cast members, we don't know a lot about it, but. I'm sure we'll get 30 emails filling us in. So stay tuned next month. Okay, this is uh, from a local to me. Uh, This is from Art. Art reached out. He lives probably an hour from me. Oh, why don't you run over and answer his question? I'm going to right now, but this isn't a question. This is a, he sent me something pretty cool, and I'm not sure if you guys have seen this yet. I actually saved this for a live on-air reveal to you guys. Uh, hi, JT. This is Art. We talked a few weeks back. I'm the one who lives near New Philadelphia. Anyway, I have a Disney blog I do for fun, and I was posting about this issue of Teen Magazine from 1972. Mm-hmm. He found a picture of the bob-around boats that he's never seen before. He wanted to send it to us and uh, see if we thought it was cool, had seen it before, anything like that. So I'm going to send it to you guys now, and you can take a look. Um, I had never seen it, but I'm sure... You guys might have. There's the, there's it's in Slack there on our chat. That's a nice uh, overhead view, looking right mm-hmm. down into it. You can see the cup holders in the center. It looks like and he, very. I like the uh, collage that it was pulled from. It's very yeah. 1972. Yeah. The flowered seats. <clears throat> that whole article has some great uh, staged pictures around the Magic Kingdom, which I want to say. Uh, were shot pre-opening. Uh, I, I, I seem to recall seeing that circulated at a time, and it was either shot pre-opening or right after it opened, because this is an early 1972 magazine. It's it's these are not shots that were reused very. If at no, all. no, no. This was the, they sent the teen uh, magazine photographer there to take yeah. pictures for the magazine. So these have not circulated. I have a PDF of the whole issue somewhere um, in this computer. It's, it's uh, either here or at the office. I have I have the whole PDF of this uh, issue, uh, but yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, he sent it to me too, and it's uh, it's there's a, a solid Eastern Airlines, uh, you know, uh, almost like in the background with a crazy Disney World display. Oh, nice. Uh, page four is the Eastern Airlines ad, which if you look 
I'm sure this it's actually for the luggage company, but the display in the back is just amazingly cool. The little castle. Oh, this is some oh, yeah. fantastic stuff in here. I will get this up on the site too. Thank you. Is very that much. Kurt Russell? It is Kurt. It Russell. is. I was going to say yes. yes it's on it is. Page eleven. Oh my god. On a, now, now there's the question for for the experts: Was that at Disney World or Disneyland? This uh, Jungle Cruise mm-hmm. boat. Well, it does says seventy two here, so. Right. Um, I'm wondering, did they fly him to the East Coast for well, this? The, well, the girl, the girl in the pixie thing, that's inside the Polynesian on uh, page, it doesn't say, Pixie of California. On page four of the PDF, she is standing in the center of the Polynesian waterfall. Yeah, these were all shot, these were all shot in Florida. Yeah, that's the old Walt Disney World Jungle Cruise outfit. Yeah, and he so. was, and he was, uh, he was in there promoting the new movie there. Now you see me, now you don't worry, it could disappear. Yeah, I like the uh, the Bring Your Pets ad with the mm-hmm. Calcan uh, Kennel Club. Yep. Yeah. Some good stuff in there, though. Thanks, Art. We appreciate this. I, uh... Picture in the Liberty Tree Tavern. I see some walnut bread there under the basket. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's got an eye for the food. Look at that. We have some ice cream. We got the ice cream cones in front of the Borden's milk truck. Next to the girl at the popcorn stand. 20 cents for a box of popcorn when the park opened. This was definitely pre-opening based on that there are no crowds anywhere. That's pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, so thanks, Art, for sending that over. Uh, not just for the Bob Around, but we'll throw that all on the site. Um, Bob Around, the whole the whole article, because that's definitely classic stuff. Uh, right in our wheel well, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so this next one is a goodie. And it kind of went off. I feel like we got this question before about the, uh, the, the trucks stuck and the bulldozers stuck and everything left in the, the lake for... Construction. This is from Jason Stanko. He's uh, in New York. Uh, all right, let me get to this because it's a long one. I'm not uh, wanting to uh, cut you off here, Jason, but I'm going to get to the good part here. Uh, so Jason was in uh, the Magic Kingdom in January. He wrote us in May here, and uh, he says he was celebrating his half-century birthday. So happy, hey, happy birthday. Uh, late hey. birthday. He uh, had the Keys to the Kingdom tour on his bucket list for 15 years, and that is a great bucket list item, I'm sure you know by now. So the night before his tour, his sister and family surprised him by taking him on one of the Disney pontoon firework cruises on Bay Lake and Seven Seas Lagoon. The skipper of the pontoon boat was very knowledgeable. So Jason, doing what we all do, he starts testing the depth of knowledge of the captain and requests (laughs) to see former locations of the Wave Machine, River Country, uh, and she was really cool with it. So it sounds like she kind of, you know, zipped around, showed him some stuff, and uh, that whole deal. When we were sailing by the ticket and transportation center in the ferry boat docks, the skipper asked me if I knew who Bob Gurr was. He said yes. She said that Bob Gurr is a friend of a friend, and she has even had the pleasure of taking him around the Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake on our pontoon. She then gave us Bob's construction equipment story. So this has now turned into a Bob Gurr story, but uh, let's hear if uh, this is something you guys have heard or if it is uh, an accurate Bob Gurr story. Bob said that on or before opening day, there was a press conference held at the Ticket and Transportation Center, and then the members of the press would board a ferry boat and take it across the lagoon. Disney wanted everything to look perfect with no signs of the fear of construction leading up to that day. In their rush to get everything finished, a piece of equipment was left behind, a bulldozer. The press started filing into the Ticket and Transportation Center. At that point, the bulldozer was not visible to the press, but it didn't have an escape route, 
which wouldn't expose itself to the press. As soon as the press were allowed onto the dock to board the ferry, the bulldozer would be exposed. The decision was made to drive the bulldozer into the lagoon and sink it. The press never saw the bulldozer, and it's still at the bottom of the lagoon today. When you're viewing the ferry boat docks uh, at the Ticket and Transportation Center from the lagoon, it is underwater to the left of the dock. I don't know. Interesting story. That seems so crazy, but Just also something that someone might do. Yeah. But it's also something that Bob Gurr would remember every detail of <laughs> from start yeah. to finish. So I'd love to quarry him on that next time we see him. We need. For how sure. do we get Bob Ballard to come to the Seven Seas Lagoon <laughs> with his. And do a dive. Do a dive there to see if we can find all the lost equipment. You know, and there, there's, there's what that guy in Brooklyn, New York, who wants the tunnel underground to find the lost locomotive. So we've you know, any of these things. This would be. And look, while we're there diving, why don't we go to World Showcase and find the, the sunken uh, dump truck over there as well? Exactly. So. Let's let's we're going to pull all of the old equipment out of the water everywhere. Um, going off of there, he he tells us this this great story. Uh, he says later in the tour, he was eventually able to make it to the Utilidors. Uh, he, he basically saw a woman down there in a wheelchair and he was kind of wondering like, you know, why would this lady be down here in a wheelchair? Well, it was explained to him that, uh, the woman's late husband worked the construction of the magic kingdom and specifically the utilidors. Every night he would tell her stories of working in these tunnels. He passed away 30 years ago. Uh, she's now a hundred and always wanted to see these utilidors where her husband worked and built them. Um, he, he thought it was elder abuse, but it was really just that she wanted to be down there. The family wasn't dragging <laughs> her down there. Um, she she asked the question where the street stoplight was in the Utilidors. Apparently during construction, there was so much traffic in the Utilidors that at least one street stoplight was installed at the intersection. Have you guys ever heard of this street stoplight in the Utilidors? I, I have not, but I can tell you from the authorized tours that I've taken that they do have those mirrors around corners, so mm-hmm, that way you can mm-hmm. sort of peek around the corner and not get hit by a, a pergo. So, yeah, it's it's definitely tight down there, so I, I could see that being something that they could use, you know, for at least, at least for a while. For sure. Well, uh, thank you, Jason, for all that. That was super fun, and uh, definitely appreciate those uh, stories shared with us because uh, we can kind of dig into them a little bit and see see what we get. So that'll do it for the mailbag. If you have anything, send us a message, podcast at retrowdw.com. Uh, easiest to email us, and uh, we also take direct messages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just reach out to us, and uh, we will attempt to get back to you in any way, shape, or form, whether it's a thank you or a hello or even possibly getting you onto a future episode. All right, well, it's time for this month's Audio Rewind, uh, how you've... Uh... You did pretty well. Didn't stump anybody, but I think, I think judging from the amount of uh, feedback, I think you stumped a few and got some uh, good responses as well. So uh, did you guys, everybody get it? Uh, yeah, I knew that one right off. So let's take a listen to last month's Audio Rewind. Be careful of the blob. All right, the answer to this month's Audio Rewind is The Blob from the Sci-Fi Dine-In. And what's interesting is that uh, our winner this month... Uh, Jeffrey Neese, congratulations. He not only sent in the correct answer, but he identified that it was written by Bert Baccarat. Whoa. Yes. So how interesting is that? Now, multiple people actually 
made sure to con- say who it was written by. So hmm. how maybe you can figure out how Burt Baccarat had anything to do with that song, which is, I find kind of... Everybody's got to start somewhere. That's all I can say. That's right. He also said that Mac David was involved as well. Well, he was also a big songwriter, so that, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. So pretty cool. So congratulations, Jeff. Uh, you'll receive the uh, ephemera prize pack, which is perfect for this month, since that's what we're going to be uh, talking about here. And we'll definitely be sending you a variety of different things from uh, from a prize pack. All right. And we have a mystery prize this month. It's going to come from either Hal or Brian's endless supply of ephemera and all sorts of Disney World goodies. So we'll get that out to the winner who knows the answer to this month's Audio Rewind. <laughs> Okay, if you think you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind, send your guesses to contest at retrowdw.com. All entries must be entered by June 23rd, 2020. All correct entries will be entered into a random drawing to pick the winner and announced on next month's episode. All right, well, it's time for this month's main topic. And uh, guys, we've been going around to different, uh, you know, pavilions. And we always think about an episode as being something that is a place in Walt Disney World uh, or events or shows or different things that that have taken place over the years. Uh, But we had a lot of uh, positive feedback a number of years ago on our souvenir and menu episode. Can you guys believe that that episode on the souvenirs, when do you think that was? You guys remember it was in our first year wasn't it it was it was yeah. way back no seven it w- yeah it was in the it was in the top 10 i yeah yeah and then uh we did one on on dining what the hell was that one what do we call that one wasn't it just menus uh and then we did one on dining uh a couple years later uh, retro food episode 33 so here episode 58 we're talking about menus brian got a new fresh set of some incredible Pueblo room and outer rim and contemporary menus. So he's going to talk about a lot of different recipes and different things over the years. Uh, and then I'm going to go through some ticket history. And then we've just got piles of ephemera. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of things that are listed on the retro WW website. So Brian, I'll turn it over to you. Let's uh, cue some little bit of lounge music here. Maybe as we uh, sip a drink and uh, take a look at what's on the menu for tonight. Southwest themed uh, lounge music, because as you know, the contemporary, for reasons unbeknownst to, <laughs> to anyone, but notes to them. That's right. Uh, had a Southwest theme for like 15 years. So, uh, yes. So I hope you're all hungry. Cause if, and if you're not, you will be by the time we're done this discussion. We love to visit on occasion, our former dining locations in, uh, in the theme parks and the resorts, uh, for a look back at uh, some very, very well-remembered things. Uh, the, the dining experience uh, in, when, the, when the resort opened was part of the whole experience. Uh, I think we've talked on the previous food-related shows that it was not a normal thing for people to go out to dinner back then. It was a, usually a special occasion or vacation. And so vacation was a big deal uh, when you worked in your meal plans. And since the parks were open, the single park, uh, 
was open usually <laughs> 10 to 6, so they could have a single shift for uh, personnel working that day. Uh, sometimes extended hours during the holidays and summer, but but for the most part, it was one eight-hour work shift for, for, the, for the crew, and that was when the park was open. When you left the parks, you needed something to do, and so they had recreation on the shores and in the resorts and things for you to do. Eventually built the shopping village, but your meal was a big part of the day. It was a thing you came home and showered and dressed for, and uh, it was a whole production. And the flagship resort, at the uh, back then was the contemporary resort so we're going to start tonight in the contemporary resort and we're going to start right at the top the top of the world i would say it was an opening day uh venue except that the contemporary wasn't finished when they opened on October 1st, 1971. <laughs> uh, so the, I'm not sure when the top of the world served its first meal, but uh, I, I do know that the tippy top of the resort, they were still putting some finishing touches on uh, in those in those final, uh, final days of construction. Uh, so the top of the world, I'm actually going to touch on. We have three menus. Uh, one oh, of wow. them is one of them is the actual opening month uh whenever it opened sometime in october 1971 um and the interesting thing about that uh i'm using the prime rib metric because prime rib was on all three menus because we're going 1971 and then we have one from like the early to mid 70s and then uh one that we just got from 1980 and um opening year dinner was all inclusive yeah your appetizer your entree your salad is a flat eight dollars and then uh, this is 1971, and then your desserts were a la carte. And I actually, that is in your little folder that I sent you. It's the single orange menu. They didn't have a lot of options. It was, you know, chicken or duck or uh, there was a fish or prime rib or fillets, mm -hmm. uh, fillet tornadoes uh, that, that, you could, that you could order. And, uh, and then a selection of uh, tropical fruits and other things that you could get as your appetizer. And then there was your a la carte desserts. Um, nothing too earth shattering at the time, very in line with what fine dining of the day would have been the mid 1970s menu, which I'm showing up to say, all of these, by the way, will be on the site and linked in the show notes when we're done. But right now the, 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 the mid one is the ninth mid seventies, uh, which is, uh, inside is parchment paper. It's a really cool cover, Ooh. but. Uh, inside is parchment paper with your cordials, always listed with your wine list and your cordials. And you could also use the Dom Perignon uh, mm. metric for trying to figure out uh, the progression of prices. But uh, the full bottle in this, what I am guessing based on pricing is like 74 maybe, uh, was twenty nine fifty a bottle. Uh, and... Whoa. Yes. What whiskeys are on there? Oh, Todd. Bourbons. You have to go to the... Well, actually, you know what? They have wines and they have cordials, but there are no cocktails really? listed here. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm just curious. No cocktails know. listed here. Perhaps... Any, any nice ports or anything? Cordials of the world. Let me see if there's anything back here. After dinner, especially... No. Hmm. No, but actually... I, yes, there is. Uh, Robertson's Black Label Port. And one. Harvey's Bristol Cream Sherry, early mid seventies menu was also all inclusive, 
uh, appetizer, salad, and beverage with the entree, but they priced the entrees. So uh, there was a different price. It wasn't the flat $8. You would get your prime rib here was eight seventy-five, so it had gone up $0.75. Cents. Now, each of these menus I'm going to mention now in the top of the world, which, by the way, you didn't just get your dinner there. You also got a show because there was an That's entertainer right. of the week. And we, we have that early uh, footage from the magical Walt Disney World that ends with them singing, what, Proud Mary, right? Uh, no, Three Dog Night, Joy to the World. Joy to the World, that's right. Yeah, yes. But to literally top off the evening, the top of the world lounge of the contemporary resort, the highest spot in Walt Disney World, is the place to go. We also had footage from, what was it? Sherry Lewis and Lambjack. Sherry Lewis, and I want to say uh, Herbie Hancock, too. I want to mention uh, the Top of the World Salad, because uh, that is on all three menus. Uh, and the Top of the World Salad, they helpfully list the ingredients in both 1970, let's say, four, and then again in the 1980 menu. And there are changes and it's important for history that we discuss the changes. Here's what's in both uh, salads. Iceberg lettuce, watercress, white asparagus, tomato, pepperoncini, olive, and contemporary dressing. Yes, the dressing recipe will be in the show notes. Then there are two different sets of ingredients for the end here. In 1974, which we're saying was green pepper and miniature corn on the cobs. And in 1980, those have been replaced by zucchini and marinated mushrooms. Hmm. So the question is, do you want the 1980 salad or the 1974 salad? Hmm. I don't like mushrooms, so. See, I like mushrooms more than the little miniature corn cobs. So the other note about the 1980 menu, first of all, it's very thick, heavy, shiny. It's a nice big, uh, has a lot of stuff in here. All of them, by the way, once you get to the like the latter half of the 70s, have uh, Spanish, English, and French. Uh, they have each of the languages inside, so you just have to kind of keep flipping through. This one does open with champagnes and sparkling wines, Todd. We're in okay. 1980, and your Dom Perignon was now $100 a bottle. Oh. So oh. it, it kind of came into its own in the latter half of the 70s. I always remembered it as like... It was the crystal of its age, right? Like mm. when we were kids, like Dom Perignon was it. Like if somebody ordered Dom, it was, wow, this is, that's like the most expensive thing you can order. Uh, do they have any um, sparkling muscatel? May I help you? Uh, uh, the, uh, the wine, please. Oh, you mad impetuous think it's champagne. Not exactly. Sparkling muscatel. One of the finest wines of Idaho. Uh, uh, well, you may serve us now, please. Oh, may I? So, but, but in, by 1980, the entire menu was a la carte, uh, except your entree included the salad. So even your vegetable accompaniment was $1.25. So everybody who was upset when uh, the boathouse opened with their $9 side of broccoli or whatever it was, yeah. Um, you know, $1980, you had to pay a buck and a quarter if you wanted your, your meat 
or your fish to come with anything other than and than what they what they had on the plate. Most of them actually included a potato as part of your as part of your dinner. But uh, back then, just uh, to wet your whistle, you may have enjoyed uh, roast duckling curacao or veal Romanoff, of course, prime rib, some fresh red snapper. Uh, but the desserts, I want to mention, you know, hot fudge sundae, black forest cake, a continental fruit tort. This fourth one, I, I really have questions. Ice cream pie with hot lemon sauce. Oh. <laughs> I, wait, wait, you said ice cream pie? Ice cream pie with, with hot, hot lemon sauce. I, I, I love lemon as dessert, but uh, I've never heard of like, I, I, I don't, I mean, I've had lemon based desserts. Mm. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I, I just, that seems like, like hot fudge is like thick enough that whatever happens there, it works in a, in a, in an ice cream sundae. Hot lemon sauce seems an odd thing, but two other notes on this 1980 menu here. Um, kids menu. This was every kid's menu ever. Golden fried chicken, fried shrimp, roast prime ribs of beef. What's missing here is there was always spaghetti on a kid's menu back in the day, but they weren't they weren't gonna slum it up in the top of the world with some spaghetti. Yeah, you, you had to sit there. And then the other last one I'm gonna mention from this menu, an appetizer, the Swiss cheese ramekin, which is a blend of Swiss cheese, sauteed onions, and custard baked in a pastry shell. So it was like oh. a poor man's brie uh, made with Swiss cheese, which was very interesting two things to note there i mentioned the prime rib uh, eight bucks in 1971 875 in 1974 1175 in 1980 and i'm sure people complained about the price the second thing 1974 the entertainment charge now this was on top of and per person so on top of your meal and whatever was included five bucks ahead for the entertainment charge Two fifty for a kid in nineteen seventy four, and in nineteen eighty uh, that had gone up fifty percent. Seven fifty, had entertainment charge, and three seventy five for a kid. So that's how they paid Sherry Lewis or Engelbert Humperdinck or whoever was there singing that week. Yeah, the amazing Crescent uh, isn't cheap. I'll tell you, you. Yeah, especially not back then when he was doing Tonight Show appearances. Yeah. So uh, I think the top of the world. I, I had an opportunity to eat there on my first trip, although. By that point, it was not a nightclub type of thing. But um, my memory is eating breakfast up there that my parents, we, we had a breakfast up there, like a breakfast buffet, uh, which is not consistent with uh, the guides of the time. But I'm like certain that we did, that we ate up <laughs> there. So I don't know if it's just a false memory or what. But did any of you eat up there prior to it becoming the California Grill? Yeah, we we, we ate up there as top of the world with the full show, the dinner show. Um, I want to say it was 1989, I recall. Um, but we did not eat in the main dining room. We only, at, at, you know, well, the lounge area. We we ate off into the where the uh, where the show area was. Uh-huh. But that was the only, only time I was up there before California Girl. So we'll come down from the top of the contemporary, take the elevator down to the Grand Canyon Concourse and stop at uh, one of the neatest places that uh, few people have pictures of because of where it was located. And that is the Pueblo Room. And the Pueblo Room uh, was an original restaurant, uh, was not quite ready 
when the resort opened. Uh, it opened in January 1972. And where that was located uh, is under the monorail track. So if you're in Chef Mickey's now, uh, after you come into the entrance and there's some tables kind of by where they come in to seat you, the buffet begins uh, kind of where they lead you in mm-hmm. and then goes all the way back. And basically where it goes all the way back underneath the monorail tracks and undercover would lead you back into where the Pueblo room was at the time. Now it's just part of Chef Mickey's. Um, and it was originally a continental breakfast and a Mexican buffet. Uh, so it was a continental breakfast in the morning and then a Mexican buffet at lunch and dinner. Uh, that's January, 1972 by the summer of that year, it had become an Italian buffet <laughs> because I think outside of, you know, we've talked it's about a big change. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. We got a bunch of emails, uh, last month on our feedback after we talked to the El Rio del Tiempo from people in Southern California who said like, Oh, we never went to Tijuana and, uh, it was, it was, you know, dangerous and, you know, and I'm sure for a lot of people it was, uh, it was not a, but Mexican food in California, my sense is that certainly from an East coast perspective, it was not as prevalent. And in the early 1970s, it still would have been kind of, exotic foreign food for a, a lot of people especially Floridians um, you know and, and East Coast tourists so uh, I'm not surprised that they opened with a Mexican theme and I'm not surprised that they quickly abandoned the Mexican theme <laughs> um, one of the, the, the and, and the following year by the way had gone to an a la carte menu one of the things I'm going to do right off the bat in the show notes is linked to uh, Passport to Dreams amazing article on basically the history of the Grand Canyon Concourse and all of the changes that these restaurants went through and in their various incarnations because we could have spent months researching this stuff, but she's already done the work for everybody. I mean, yeah. it's it's amazing, uh, you know, and and this uh, this restaurant was no different, uh, but it effectively, what she, she notes in, in her article there is that by uh, the following, by 1973, it had switched menus with the Grand Canyon Terrace. So the buffet moved out to the Grand Canyon Terrace because it was a bigger venue and they could serve more people because part of the part of what a lot of the articles keyed on back from, from those early years, and we know this from when they opened the, Gol- the Gulf Coast Room and some other things in former banquet spaces in, in, in the contemporary, uh, they... Do you remember Sully telling us the, what was it, the elevator story that they were figuring out the yeah. weights on the elevator and right. yeah. and and trying to cast family sizes and things like that? Everything was based on, what was it, two, two visitors? 2.4 or something? 2.2 visitors per room or something. And yeah. then yeah. when people went there, they got five. So right. every single thing from the elevators to the escalators to the, the types of food that were offered were all based on this faulty model. Right. So everything that they did, a lot of like 72 and 73 stuff that they were doing in the resorts was trying to expand capacity so that they could meet it. And food was a big thing that in Disneyland, what people would do is go to the park and then walk across the street to their motel and eat the food that they had in their room and then go back into the park. And the the, the obviously the Florida situation was different because you're in this isolated resort with nothing else around you're going to eat on property and 
they had to quickly adjust and adapt uh, their food offerings and the amounts and the, the variety of options and things like that to be able to accommodate the families that were coming there and the business uh, conferences and things like that. So uh, the menu that we have, which is absolutely terrific, you guys have scans of this. Uh, the cover is a very wavy looking thing, but the, but the amazing thing is when you open it, First, there is a, the preamble is this like history and philosophy behind the Grand Canyon concourse, uh, which is just like the coolest thing. <laughs> um, it's welcome to the spectacular Grand Canyon concourse. It promotes the, you know, stats uh, in like 21st century cliff dwellings or beautiful guest rooms at the contemporary. Each of the 1,054 guest rooms in this hotel was built by United States Steel about three miles from here. The colorful trees are uh, plexiglass trees uh, rising from the canyon floor are part of a vast indoor setting treated by designers as though it were a stylized landscape outdoors. Even the moods of the day are captured by the ever-changing patterns of light streaming through the concourse and walls and skylights. So that's the, that's the, the feel that you were getting there. Again, this menu is in French. Spanish and English. Uh, there is some terrific Mary Blair artwork uh, on each of the pages. It's different for each of the languages. Uh, so there are two and we will, as we'll have scans of all this on the site, you'll be able to see them. Again, I mentioned this is a late 70s menu based on the pricing. The hot fudge sundae here is the same price as the 1980 top of the world. So you have to kind of guess since there's no dates on these things. Uh, but what I love about this, this is a lunch menu, and there are three entrees. And the first entree is pretty obvious. It's steak and enchiladas. Nice. The second one is Kingdom Queen. And what Kingdom Queen is, an assortment of, uh, of seafood, scallops, shrimp topped with Newburg sauce, and steakhouse potatoes. Everywhere else in the world, that's called Seafood Newburg. Exactly. It's here it's called Kingdom Queen. King, Kingdom Queen. And now I'll put my food historian hat on. Seafood Newburg, uh, invented at Delmonico's in New York City, one of many, many dishes invented there. The apocryphal story is that a patron there named Wenberg, it was uh, made for him and he loved it. And then they had it on the menu every day and it felt, and he had a falling out with the owner. So to give him a little shot, the owner changed the name from Seafood Winberg, switched the two letters around and made it Seafood Newberg. <laughs> so that's the Seafood Newberg story. And then the third option is Ports O'Call. Tender chunks of chicken, mushrooms and garden vegetables served in a casserole. Can you tell me the other name of this dish? Because that's exactly what chicken a la king is. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but when you when you say it that way, oh, ooh, that yeah, sounds good. That's the soup du jour. Uh, what is the soup du jour? It's the soup of the day. Mm, that sounds good. I'll have that. That's interesting that they named it after two of the vessels that you might yes. see yeah. playing the waters as you're eating your your lunch. And and they did that with a lot of stuff. There was a sandwich on the menu called the Southern Seas, which was just a tuna yeah. sandwich. Um. The Rocky Mountain, the Pueblo Club, uh, nothing that jumps out too much from this one. The salads are interesting. I love the sunburst salad. As you remember back then, there was always a focus on the citrus. So there was a medley of fruits with cottage cheese and some Boston brown bread. What's interesting too, Brian, is that, you know, 
enchilada was not a common thing to eat you know back then it, i mean now enchiladas it, and tacos it, and it was the one on brand thing on the menu like yeah exactly that's what i was gonna say you're it's in the, the pueblo room and there. yeah it's the only thing there and even then it's like oh you get some strip sirloin a cheese enchilada or steakhouse potatoes if you, if you don't know what an enchilada is but the rest of it is a very american amet menu yeah yeah very very much so uh, and again just kind of I did think the one thing, other interesting thing on this menu was the uh, the butcher block option. Uh, an array of ham, gouda cheese, sliced turkey, roast beef, and an individual loaf of bread. So it's like a build, it's like a build your own sandwich. <laughs> I was just Look. looking at it. That looks really good. Yeah. Like the gouda. I wish they would do that again, right? It's a charcuterie board. But before yeah. anyone yeah, said fish. charcuterie. Yeah, no one had ever said that up, at that, up to that point. So uh, the menu was really nice. I was really excited to get that one but not nearly as excited as Hal was for me to get this one. Yeah. So yeah. this is the Outer Rim. And uh, the Outer Rim opened in spring 1973 as a steakhouse. Uh, the Pueblo Room was in sight of the Outer Rim. So if you're standing there, you're, you're looking at the, uh, at the Grand Canyon Terrace and you're looking at the Outer Rim on your left and then all the way around was the Pueblo Room. And eventually they built Coquino Cove in the back uh, yep. of of that area but and we got a tweet tonight brian 24 minutes ago which restaurant was all the way at the end of the contemporary the outer rim or the pueblo room so you answered that earlier the well pueblo depends room the outer depends rim, on, that's right it was, was the say, outer which, rim when uh, is, when when the when the <laughs> when the concourse ended there but then they yeah. enclosed uh i think it was a porch or a, an area they enclosed with glass and made that coca kino cove in like the late 70s yeah, and so it's open to interpretation. It, it had to be hot. I, th- I know we talked about that when we brought this restaurant, but I mean, it's an all glass, like a, it was like a greenhouse uh, restaurant in the Florida heat, like <laughs> Coca-Cino Cove, which we're not covering in this episode, had to have been just boiling hot in there. Uh, so, so the Outer Rim first has this awesome logo, and we've now got a really nice, clean uh, representation of it that it may turn into a shirt. I don't know. Yeah. We'll find out. Um, but inside this menu, which I have guessed is 1975, I think I've placed it. Uh, first off is this the Sunburst legend. And so you have this whole illustration and story of the Sunburst, which is this Southwest uh, Native American representation. And it, 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 none of it ties to anything related to the Outer Rim or any of that. It's just it's a very interesting way to fill the space on this page and then you have the dinner menu now uh terrific grip terrific graphics but before you went into the outer rim uh which at today as you're walking into uh again chef mickey's it's the space on your left and i honestly don't know what they use it for today would it that the left hand side as you're walking in there. What is what is that space today, Hal? It is it is still called the outer rim, and right. it's a small bar. It's the, so it's it's the bar now, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the, uh, that's before Chef Mickey's. This is he's talking farther down. Because now, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm I'm mapping this in my brain. Yeah. Like if I'm walking towards it, the outer rim current bar is like there, and then you keep moving. Then you go to the quick serve, and then even farther is like the Chef Mickey's entry and yeah. all that. You're saying to the left of current Chef Mickey's, which is just seating now. That's it. It's so almost you're like right, Brian. Expanded. It would have been much further down. Yeah, it was further back so, yeah. from what it, the bar that is today, the Outer Rim. Uh, 
this was further back. Like it's literally back where the podium is to go into Chef Mickey's. It's just seating. That now. area That's on the left. Yeah, I didn't know if they had filled it in or opened it up or what because I just it's terrible because we've all been there a billion times and I cannot picture in my head what that space has kind of become or what they use it for. So. Yeah, I think it's mostly Chef Mickey's, and it, it makes sense because that's where people are yeah. going. You know, the moneymaker there. So the interesting thing, though, was at that time, the, the outer wall of the of the restaurant, uh, which faced the Grand Canyon Concourse, which you would walk by to get to the Pueblo Room, had these beautiful cut-in dioramas of Mary Blair figures. And you catch them in pictures. We've got a bunch on our site that are in, like, the background of stuff. Uh, I would love to know what happened to them because <laughs> at some point, obviously, they took them out. But there were, you know, maybe a half dozen of them that were cut into the wall and behind glass. There were these, you know, it was just exactly like a small world figure or like the artwork that you see on the mural in the Grand Canyon Concourse, except they were three dimensional figures and in, in, in these little displays and uh, really added a lot, I thought, to the to the vibe uh, on the outside of the outer rim. Uh, but as I mentioned, it did open in spring of 73 as a steakhouse. And our menu here is from around 1980. Um, and the 1975 menu, uh, which I did look at, included a salad. This 1980 menu, everything is a la carte. So that's the same difference that we saw at the top of the world. Uh, the 1975 outer rim you could get prime rib for 725 that had increased to 1175 by 1980 and then our our second metric here is the shrimp cocktail 225 in 1975 375 in 1980 um but it was a small dining venue um and it functioned into the 1980s uh i think it lasted until 95 in this form before they started to do uh, renovations in there and, and reutilize the spaces. Uh, and I think Foxy's article mentions that it held on to at least some of it in uh, until the like the, the mid 2000s uh, before mm. they finally did away with the space altogether to reimagine it as whatever it is. So what's, what's crazy to me about this is when whenever I've seen the outer rim bar, I think of like outer rim of like space. Correct. Yeah, and then they, but then now when I look at this, I'm thinking, rim of the Grand Canyon, like that's the theme for yep then correct. So it's weird they took the same exact name and they made it modern <laughs> into the the weird version of contemporary now, but somehow it kind of still well, works. And, it looks and the futuristic. contemporary version now, I mean, it is a space vibe. Like the yeah. the, the, the aesthetic there is like space age. Yeah, like what are the odds that it matches a Southwest theme and a space age theme? It's just crazy. Apparently 100%. Yeah, that's right. Brian, I I love the fact that, you know, you mentioned they have the prime rib, the shrimp scampi, the chicken cordon bleu, and those are the three main items that you could get. But then they to to just entice you, the combination entrees, you can have prime rib of beef and shrimp scampi. (laughs) Yeah. Or you can have prime rib of beef. And chicken cordon bleu, yes. or you can have shrimp scampi and chicken cordon bleu. Those are actually three additional combination entrees. Listed, so yeah. They give you six choices from just. They three call the, they call those mixed grills now in today's yes. in today's menu world. But yes, you're absolutely right. It's like the fisherman's platter. Gotta love, the fisherman's <laughs> love the fisherman's or the captain's platter. catch. The captain's catch. The admiral's platter. Yeah. Scully's catch of the day. It's fresh grouper. It's lightly breaded. 
saute to a golden brown, and lemon butter and shallots with a teasing hint of Dijon. We'll take five. Cartes! Si, senor. Cinco scallies. Catch of the day. Cinco scallies. Catches of the day. Bon appetit. Thank you very much. That is a summer rental uh, reference, 1985, and filmed uh, not far from where Hal lives. So, yes, terrific John Candy summer vacation movie. uh, Karen Austin, uh, Rip Torn. So before we leave the contemporary, uh, maybe you didn't feel like going to the top of the world or down into the Grand Canyon concourse. Maybe you'd had a rough day at the park and you just wanted to order some room service. Now, there are tons of contemporary room service menus that go up for sale that are circulating. I think we've got four or five different versions on our website. This one is probably mid-70s based on the prices. Now, the reason there are so many of these is they were very easy to steal because they put them in your room. So you could just tuck it into your luggage as you were leaving um, and then they would just replace it. So uh, that's why there are so many in circulation. Uh, This one here, uh, as I mentioned, mid-70s, room service was available 6 a.m. to midnight. Uh, all you had to do was touch five on your phone and a uh, very plain Jane breakfast menu. Uh, not even worth mentioning, except, uh, no, I'm going to stick with not even worth mentioning. Although you might like to know the cereal choices. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Rice Krispies, Corn Flakes, All Bran, mm. Sugar Frosted Flakes, which later became Frosted Flakes, and Raisin Bran. All brands, not one that you hear much in. Well, you're right. Is it is it still around? It is around. It's, it's still it is out okay. There in some you don't see the commercials around. though. Product 19 has gone away though. They they discontinued that a few years back. But darn it. So when you were finished your breakfast, you could move to all day dining. Now I like to look at the all day dining for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, the sunburst fruit salad is here. Another sun, another Florida salad. This one slightly changed. Remember, the last one was a assortment of fruits, a scoop of cottage cheese, and some brown bread. This one is orange <laughs> and grapefruit sections surrounded a large Georgia peach on cottage cheese. So the, just pop that peach. The in brown there. bread's out. The peach is in. Uh, you know, there've been some changes here. One consistent thing on all of these menus going back to the earliest of of the ones in the 70s into the late 80s is the monorail sandwich it's Mm. it's an open face sandwich it's on every one of these room service menus um and very simple an open face sandwich featuring ham and turkey and swiss cheese served on dark rye bread topped with russian dressing um brian you you missed all the superlatives though because you know it's attempting it's attempting open face sandwich and it features and then i love on the crab meat avocado one succulent chunks nobody uses that word nobody uses that word succulent it's a disgusting word (laughs) and i'm just looking i want to call as a joke and say i'll have a peanut butter and jelly and a glass of tomato juice (laughs) tomato juice tomato juice listed appropriately as an appetizer jt because back then tomato or citrus juices were served as an appetizer course in places like you'd literally go to a fancy dinner and in the center of your of your of your proper china plate 
would be a small glass of juice. And like that was your appetizer. Yeah. Like you were supposed to down your juice. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think the Do you think the French fried potatoes are golden brown? Uh, does it say they're golden brown? No, I'm I'm a little disappointed. Again, the waffle it's, it's, did. That said, it was golden. Oh, it did. Yes. More yeah. superlatives. Okay. All right. I like the Frankfurter. Frankfurters. Big, <laughs> Furter, big deal. Yeah. I, I will say that uh, if you're ordering room service, the Florida grouper uh, looks pretty good, but the prime mm. rib of beef is a blue ribbon cut. Oh, but you could only get the baked potato at dinner. Knowing so the way th- things go with with room service, I'm trying to imagine ordering fish, <laughs> and then waiting for it to hopefully show up. I hopefully it shows up fresh out of the kitchen. But I, don't. I do love yeah. how un- uninspired the desserts are here. I yeah, mean, they're really just chocolate uh, cake, strawberry cheesecake, apple pie, Florida fruit cup, and Jello or chocolate pudding. Like, <laughs> like we gave up. A cup of Jello and a Sanka to yeah. go. That's, well, that's the. I was just going to mention Sanka. That's another item you don't see. No. It's still out there, but it was omnipresent on menus oh. from the late '60s into the early '90s. Yes. It was before every coffee brand was known for also making a decaf brew. Sanka was it. Like Sanka was what people yeah. who didn't want caffeine. That's what they ordered. It was an instant dehydrated, right? Uh, yes. Yes. That's a. That's a. My mom ordered that. And even when you would order Sanka at a restaurant, it would come in the packet with hot water yeah. and you would rip open the top of the packet and put it <laughs> and pour into, it into yourself. Yep. Pour My mom crystals. was a big Sanka drinker too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, crazy. Todd, I'm pretty sure. Isn't there a thing of Sanka on the. That's what I was going to say. On, in, the in, in your picture of the treehouse. Yeah. Correct. Correct. That was my mom. She she traveled with it for crying out loud. She brought that with her. Yeah. She did. JT, you might, you might have to put that right in the article so nobody has to hunt on our site for the Sanka. Yeah, because it's not tagged, Sanka. No. Yeah, it's right on the right on the counter. So, so the dining options uh, were endless back then at the Grand at the uh, in the Grand Canyon Concourse and the Contemporary. Uh, I have one last menu. Actually, there are two, but there's really one that I want to mention here. So, this is very exciting because uh, if you in 1971 you got bored and wanted to walk to the golf resort, you couldn't because it wasn't there yet. <laughs> but, but, but they did open it. In uh, 1973, in late 1973, uh, it was uh, and and we have the menu here for the Magnolia Dining Room. So what's the Magnolia Dining Room, you might ask? Uh, Well, the Magnolia Dining Room was the fine dining venue at the golf resort. Uh, It later became the much more famous and well-known trophy room, which it was for most of its life before eventually uh, becoming part of the Shades of Green Resort when Disney uh, surrendered the golf slash Disney Inn Resort to the Department of Defense, and it became the Shades of Green Resort. And now it's an Italian restaurant, I believe, uh, that's there. But uh, back then, uh, the golf resort obviously was meant to attract uh, gentlemen of uh, who were interested in golfing and ladies that were interested in golfing. It was the, the they held the big Walt Disney World golf tournament there every year that, that the top golfers in the world would come and compete in. So this was to be the flagship golf resort. So it catered to a country club crowd. And uh, this menu is from the earliest days of the venue. It is either the opening menu from December 1973 or a very early 1974 update. Um based on the pricing but we will start first and foremost with something we foreshadowed here earlier jt wanted a cocktail that he could make yeah. without a lot of complications and the first thing on the menu here is the golf resort's signature 
Country Club Cocktail. Now, let's see if you have all the ingredients here, JT. You ready? Get yeah, your pen and You paper. need rum yeah. and pineapple juice. Oh, those are easy. That's a good one. <laughs> wow. That's a, a... How you're going to have to do some deep diving on the ratios for JT on that one. Oh, yeah. I'm, we'll thinking, a one to, I'm thinking a one to two. <laughs> one to two, maybe. <laughs> for, for Dash of betters. For, depends how the baby's doing for here. For 250, it was a rum and pineapple juice punch. So uh, that is uh, the, the start here of the Magnolia Room. Now you picture you've come in from a day of golf and you've put your plaid jacket on. In fact, we have. Don't we have a great picture of a guy in like a plaid sport coat sitting in the Magnolia the Diamond? Some, somewhere we do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a Disney PR picture. I mean, let's start with the appetizers here. And, uh, you know, onion soup, clam chowder. But the salad of the great Caesar for two. Ooh. So this would be your tableside Caesar salad, which was a hallmark of fine dining restaurants at the time. And the chiffonade salad. Did I say that right? Mm. Is it chiffonade or chiffonade? Chiffonade. Which doesn't seem to be all that remarkable once you read it. It's lettuce and avocado, tomatoes. Yeah, string, string beans, cucumber, olives. Bits of crisp bacon and a vinaigrette. Yeah, a chiffonade is what you you would you do that with basil, where you roll the basil and then you cut it so it's you get long thin yes. strips. So it's probably stripped lettuce. Yeah, it's a it's, it sounds like the brown derby. <laughs> so the menu is kind of short here. You know, there's not a lot on it. Chicken uh, fillet of sole Veronica, which is just a white wine sauce. Yes, prime rib, uh, five ninety five here. Uh, oh, so it's it's a good deal. So the signature dish here, of course, prepared tableside, is the skillet steak, farmer style. Uh, it is a New York sirloin st- strip steak with sautéed green peppers, onions, and pimiento, and a baked <laughs> stuffed Idaho, presumably potato, and not <laughs> and not the state of Idaho. <laughs> is it a private Idaho? So I'm looking at this, and you have to figure that they what they must do is, I'm assuming the steak is already cooked, or at least partially cooked when they bring it out. I'm hoping the, that they roll out a grill, and they just cook it next to your table. I mean, peppers, like, onions. At 450 and, degrees. Yeah. It sounds like it sounds like pepper steak from a Chinese it, it restaurant. It does, you know? but why... Like this is not a what? thing you need to have prepared tableside. Like, <laughs> no. But what? What does the farmer have to do with it? I, I, well, it's farmer style. Maybe the guy that sautés it comes out in overalls or something. I. So uh, that, that that's it. There are four entree options: uh, two beefs, the chicken, and the and the fillet of sole. Uh, tell you, if you didn't like, a lot of these menus are so limited. They, We're so spoiled with huge menus now. But there's an important note at the bottom, Todd. It says, portions for children under 12 available on request. So right. so maybe they only sent you out like a half a skillet to prepare table side <laughs> if, you're, if your kid wanted the uh, skillet steak. It was prepared halfway to your table. Yeah. You had to watch <laughs> from afar. <laughs> they had a little table off to the side for the kid to sit at. But here's the great thing. There are four entrees for dinner. There are five yeah. options for dessert. 
and look at the first like, one. Like I'm going to come back to this. the first one because I want to mention yeah. the other ones first because they're all interesting. Oh, yeah. The coconut mousse parfait, which is something I would order. The assorted French pastries, uh, which is terrific. For 85, 85 cents. 85 cents. Yeah, 80 cents for the coconut parfait. German chocolate cake, always always a favorite, at 60 cents. And macadamia nut pie, which is in, an interesting choice for the golf resort in Central Florida. Uh, yeah. But, yes, the signature dessert, which is three times as expensive as anything else on the menu, is the Crepes Fitzgerald prepared table side. And those are thin French pancakes filled with custard and topped with strawberries in kirsch. I love crepes. Yes. Delicious. Mm-hmm. Delightful. And those should be prepared tableside. They, they should be prepared tableside. They, they don't taste right otherwise. Um, but that's not the last great thing on this menu. Aside from the note that you are allowed to tip your uh, food service hosts and hostesses, which Hal explained earlier, how why is that specifically spelled out on the menus? It is specifically there because Disney had a very strict no tipping policy on all almost all of the cast members universally around the the parks. Of course, I, now I don't know who thought you would have to tip the person that put you on Small World, but for some reason. <laughs> They felt it was important in all the documents to like well, let people know that. I, that. I know what Todd's going to say. Go ahead. You could you could pay with change too. Uh, well, there's that. To to right. So if you if, if it's ten cents to ride Small World. All right, look, I got quarter. Here you go. Yeah. Keep it. Right. Well, I, I I think it's true. Part of it too was to control. Oh, you want a better room at the Contemporary? Palm yeah. palm the guy ten bucks. You you want to get on to Space Mountain? It's a two hour wait. Slip a $10 bill to the guy and your whole family gets a... I think it was more to codify that you weren't allowed to do that. I will add, too, to this. I I did more Disney trips before a cruise trip. And I was surprised when I was on my first cruise trip how many bills are expected and passed. And, you know, the guy throws your bag in the car. Give him 20 bucks. You know, you just throw money around. Where at Disney... You never really did that growing up. Like, I didn't see my dad handing people money, and it was just, it seems like it was, uh, it, I don't know, maybe it's more prevalent on other trips than, than Disney, and they didn't want that to roll into the Disney the Disney trip then. So your tableside experiences here have been, the Caesar salad's been prepared tableside. You've had your skillet steak prepared tableside. You've had your desserts here, your crepes Fitzgerald prepared tableside. You figure, hey, these guys keep coming back and forth to my table to prepare food. You're done for the night, but you're wrong, because if you see the last thing listed under <laughs> beverages, you could get your Irish coffee prepared table side for a dollar seventy five. Now, I don't know what kind of pageantry could have gone into bringing a bottle of Jameson's <laughs> and a cup of coffee and a little whipped cream to put, to put on top. Well, they're, well they're, let they're, me tr- tell you, true, Brian. I was going to say the true go. the true. Irish coffee has a preparation with a spoon and everything, correct? Al? Well, it's it can be even more than that because this 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 can be served and prepared for you flaming, if if you so choose. <laughs> it better for a dollar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really, I'm so here's what you here's what you got for your dollar seventy five. Very likely, they would come out with a saucepan over medium heat, like a copper pan or a thick bottom pan. You would put fresh nutmeg in the bottom, mm. like very finely grated, and then coarse brown sugar on top of that. And what happens is the sugar starts to caramelize at the bottom of the pan, right? 
So then once the sugar is caramelized, you take two tablespoons of hot coffee, swirl it around in the pan. Then you put the Jameson inside of the pan, let it light on fire, and then you pour the flaming concoction into the glass, like nice. out of the pan. And, and I've seen them do this at the Mai Kai. They have a flaming drink there. And if you're adept at it, the waiters there can can pick up the, the burning pot of their coffee thing and hold it like a good two, three feet above the table and pour it out of that. And it just spills like this waterfall of fire down into the glass. We're having one of those at the next event. What a scene. That's yeah. So, and so then you pour that. So once that's poured in, then you top it up with the rest of the coffee. And then you take the cream, you know, very, very carefully and, and kind of float it up on top. So just sitting here trying to finish my macadamia nut pie and a guy's pouring flames <laughs> on next to me. Setting stuff just, on fire here next uh, to me. Here we were having a nice evening. And then, look. Oh, that's an awesome ending. Yeah. yeah so... Well worth the dollar seventy-five, which today you figure like five times, you know, like twelve, twelve, thirteen, fourteen dollars probably today, um, based on when this menu's from. So that's uh, that's quite the show, Howard. Thank you for You're filling welcome. in that blank. I'm excited. Oh, I want to add my cheap drink trick. I have. Yes, um, we want to hear about it. So it relates to this because it's a country club. When I was staying at our event last time, I was at Saratoga Springs, which connects to a golf course. I don't know which one. Um, I don't golf and I was just walking, you know, trying to catch a boat or a bus or something. And I found a, a, a bar, but it was down in, in down into the left. You know what I mean? It was like hidden, like near the boat dock, but kind of hidden. And it was so like low class for a Disney drink. Like they literally gave us, uh, uh gave me like a, 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 rum and Coke in a, in a foam cup because it was the golf cart drive up bar and i didn't know and it was like this cool secret spot it reminded me of this cheap rum and uh pineapple juice here at the magnolia room and it's very similar but you know these golfers pulling up on golf courts and i just come up on foot and got my drink and, and sat there and watched the the river go by it's right there by the uh the boat dock there so lovely it was <laughs> So our last menu we're going to stop at. I just pasted into the chat so you guys can see. And that is for the Sand Trap restaurant. Now, the Sand Trap restaurant was the restaurant that served the uh, Osprey Springs, Osprey Ridge golf course. Uh, and the Osprey Ridge, along with, what was the other one that opened down there? 1992, the Eagle Pines. They yeah. opened two golf courses down there in 1992. Um, and they closed in 2013, and they are now part of the uh, uh, Four Seasons property. One of at least one of the golf courses was converted to be part of the uh, Four Seasons property. And the Sand Trap Restaurant was the restaurant where golfers could stop and have lunch or uh, something to eat during the day. And so this is a fairly late in life menu that I shared with you guys. There's not a lot of notable stuff on there. It's typical golf course food. It's something we will add to the uh, to the site simply because there aren't, you know, a lot of people didn't go there because it wasn't part of the part of the um, the the standard Disney World vacation to hit the golf course's snack bar. Uh, but I do want to mention this one because Todd, it has. One of your favorite listings, which is the drink prices. So oh, yes. you see in the bottom right there, they have your price for well drinks and standards and premiums. And 
uh, you were, you know, forking over 950 if you wanted uh, a Tanqueray and tonic, I think. Anybody see anything on here they'd like to order? I mean, it's it's so play tuna sandwich, a Reuben sandwich, a class, uh, clubhouse, yeah, club sandwich. It's, it's The look and feel of it is so obviously past the 70s at this point. It's the way that it's – the word clubhouse is put everywhere. Yeah, and it's generic. I mean, it's so generic yeah. that, that – There's it, nothing it's, exciting. It's, it's, it's any um, sports bar type, you know, golf – I mean. The uh, I, I'm also a little disappointed. The osprey spinach salad doesn't come with osprey in it. But, um, <laughs> bits of real the, osprey, uh, fresh. Bits, <laughs> bits of real osprey. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I mean, you know, for its time. What year was this? Uh, this this was probably the the like late two thousands, early two. I mean, based on the prices, this yeah. has got to be in the two thousands. And also, I'm looking at ma- grilled mahi. Nobody knew it. Baja fish tacos yeah. are making them way. So I mean, yeah, I, I would get those, and even then, those might be a little. Uh, Odd for the time. Or the I, I do like in. the cover, which which is a golf bag, but it has a knife, fork, <laughs> yeah. and spoon sticking out instead of golf club. So you know, because it's a restaurant. That's right. uh, didn't catch that one before. The pattern behind it kind of looks like a back of a cane chair. I'm trying to yeah. figure out why <laughs> it relates at all to this. Couldn't tell you, but yep. I'm sure a handful of our listeners have been to uh, have, have replenished themselves after a round of golf with a nice uh, Baja fish taco. And might want to write in and tell us about their experience. Uh, so that is uh, where we're going to close the menus. Um, but that's not the end of us talking about Walt Disney World food. Because we have no. two things to mention. And then anything you might want to throw in there. Uh, there are foods over time that have become famous at Walt Disney World. We all Dole Whip is a good example of one that has established a foothold in the last 20 years there. 30 years really. Um, and other things that have been served on property. The Monte Cristo in Disneyland, but was served in the Magic Kingdom for the first 20 years of Disney World's existence. And for some reason, they took it away, and I've been sad ever since. Um, but I think one of the premier things that, that uh, people talk about today is the Tonga Toast, which is uh, served at the Polynesian in Kona Cafe and uh, down in Captain Cook's in the quick service. Uh, this stuff, I really credit um, the Burn Bombs Guide with making it, like elevating it into something. Because they used to have little sections, like a little a little bubble in the Burn Bombs Guides saying like, this is the most delicious stuff on property and, you, and here's the places you can get it. Uh, but most people uh, figure that it's like a 90s invention or a late 80s invention. Uh, if you think that, you're wrong. Uh, stuffed French toast, which later became known as Tonga toast, was actually created in 1978 by Walt Disney World's executive chef, Johnny Rivers, who's a notable figure in, uh, in the Central Florida area, and for being one of the uh, highest ranking corporate uh, chefs who was an African-American. He was and ran all of the food in Walt Disney World for about 20 years before he retired. Uh, Prior to the first publication of the recipe in 1986, Walt Disney World had received 50,000 requests for the stuffed French toast recipe. Uh, It's very simple. It is thick sourdough bread with pockets sliced into it to stuff bananas. You dip it in an egg, milk, and vanilla mixture. You fry it in oil until it is crisp and browned, and then toss it in cinnamon sugar. Yes, we will have the recipe on our website. 
this was on the menu at Chef Mickey's in the village uh, before it moved to the contemporary. Uh, in various incarnations, it was also in many of the resorts. It's most famous today, as you know, at the Polynesian. Uh, I know for a while there was a banana stuffed French toast with strawberry banana sauce that was served at Boatwright's, which is at the Port Orleans Riverside Resort. And that sit down restaurant used to serve breakfast. Uh, that was on the on the breakfast menu there. Um, more interesting one I just found a few months ago. Uh, the toasted apples was a uh, menu item listed on the room service menu at the Disney Inn in the early 1990s. And what it was, was it was Tonga toast, stuffed French toast, but instead of having bananas in it, it had apples and cinnamon stuffed in it, um, which is which perfectly makes sense. I also remember vividly seeing somewhere sometime a Bananas Foster's topped version of it. Mm. So that was either on a breakfast menu at Bonfamies at Port Orleans uh, Resort, which is now the French Quarter, back when that restaurant used to be open for sit-down. I don't know if it was ever open for breakfast. I think it was. Uh, so that might be where my memory's from. Or it could have been a version of it that was served at Boatwrights before they had the strawberry banana sauce on it. Uh, so uh, how about you guys, Paul, fans of Tonga Toast? Think my, That was something that my grandmother always got with that uh, Leilani drink or whatever the heck it was, the sweet Leilani. Oh, the sweet Leilani, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, did your grandmother then go into like a, a nap or something because her glucose must have, her blood sugar must have been about 500 that's what kept her go- you know my grandma was always the type to order something and take a couple bites ah, you kids eat it so uh, I'm sure I had it I mean cinnamon and sugar I mean oh so good but uh, I, it's not something I went down there and ever crave though I will say that I I have had it and I think I I've come to the conclusion that I can only eat about a half of a Tonga toast without feeling ill later on in the day, <laughs> probably just from the, the sugar content and just fullness. It's a very filling uh, breakfast item, but it does yeah. taste good. It's giant. Like it just, it comes out and it's this giant hunk. Yeah. I recently had uh, at one of our local restaurants here, they had a very similar version that had pineapple in it. And that was just fantastic. So Ooh. stuffed french toast what a good idea yeah how about you jt have you ever had it uh once a few years back and it's it's fine i like it it's you know i don't know so i, I think i'd i wouldn't go go there specifically for it but it's it's a solid solid item yeah that's mine if, if i'm there I, I mean i've i've ordered it as often as i haven't ordered it when i eat a kono and i do love breakfast at kono because uh, they have a, a lot of non-traditional options on the menu um but I've also had it in the in the Captain Cook's downstairs. Uh, I discovered over time, you know, the first time I got it, French toast. I have maple syrup. You know, that's how I eat it. And that was like sugar on top of sugar. It was not enjoyable. So then uh, the Polynesian, I don't know what this is, like a strawberry compote or something that they serve it with. So I tried it with that and I liked it. Anymore, I really, if I do get it, I just eat it with butter. I just spread a little butter on it and let that melt and that's all i mean i don't put any topping on it anymore other than a little bit of butter so uh, it is very good people love it i mean i you know we get we get tweets and stuff from people all the time who just go nuts for that so it 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 is now uh what 40 42 years old i mean it was created in 1978 that's crazy isn't it uh so that is not the 
I mean, obviously, as we said, there's a lot of famous foods, but there is one that has actually gone the way of the dodo bird, but was for 20 years a thing that people loved and went specifically to the parks to have. Uh, that the recipes are out there. It's in all the Disney recipe books that were published in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, and you can, if you ever stumble onto cast member discussions and stuff from people who were there in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, they all loved the English walnut bread at the Liberty Tree Tavern. And uh, this is also believed to be created by Johnny Rivers. Uh, the recipe was published in the Orlando Sentinel in the 1970s. Uh, so it was already like a famous thing then. And servers report serving it in the earliest days of the resort. So uh, it, it's it was it predated the Tonga Toast. Apparently Johnny's specialty was creating breads that people lusted after. Um, and and the way they promoted it was it, it came with your meal. It was part of whatever you know whatever you ordered back then. It was a la carte back then. It was a pot roast was a famous dinner back then, and chicken pot pies and things like that. Uh, but you got warm English walnut bread, which they served with three types of butters: honey butter, which they made in house apple butter <clears throat> and Mickey mouse shaped butter. Oh, yeah. So that was a famous thing. Like people wanted it, uh, you know, and they would get this warm bread and you'd spread your Mickey head butter on it and just like load up on carbs before your meal got there. If you want to see those, go to the website and search <laughs> the gallery for the word butter. We've tagged, I, I just did it now. And there, uh, we came up with four, Four pictures of Mickey butter that we have on here. So. Uh, and somebody also reported that they also served it at King Stephens, which is today Cinderella's oh. royal table. Except there, it was just with the Mickey ear butter. It was not. It was not with the okay. other butters. Uh, but the English walnut bread, uh, I, you know, was we, we were discussing it earlier, and somebody asked me, "What do you think happened to it?" And my guess is that uh, in the '90s, when they started to that like the the bit where if you have an allergy the chef comes to your table and and goes through it and if you've any of you've ever been there with somebody who has a listed allergy uh, most of those procedures kind of developed in the 90s uh, as Disney became famous for that kind of customer accommodating customer service my guess is that a nut based bread as the default probably went out of favor uh, in a review and then plus I think walnuts are pretty expensive so. I think it was probably a cost-cutting mess uh, measure as well. Uh, but we will have the recipe for that. And if somebody wants to make it, I will be happy to try a piece. There we go. But, uh, yeah, so that's it. We have some menus, a couple of famous foods. Write to us and tell us other famous foods we missed, and like, from a while ago. Like, yeah, not something that they served last year and took away. Although, you know, <laughs> I do miss things from the more recent days, like the good egg rolls in Adventureland. Oh, yeah, the good ones, the good ones. Well, thank you very much, Brian. A lot of great research there. I hope you're hungry. I hope look, everybody's look hungry there. now. I am. I'm starving, and I, I got to get to bed here a little bit. So. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we have a couple other little quick announcements to make before we sign off here. First, we want to give a shout out to David Coolidge. He has a new website opened up, and uh, uh, if any of you remember, David Coolidge was uh, part of our. Uh, he was uh, wow. He was on the show. We have um, restored some of his home movies. He is a watercolor artist. Uh, did a lot of things for uh, was it Campbell Soup over the years and a lot of other. Great and he stuff. does the Smuckers Christmas plates Smuckers. every year, every single That's year right. Smuckers. since Smuckers. the seventies. Smuckers has put out 
might even be the late 60s, puts out uh, these keepsake plates at Christmas. So uh, the kind your grandmother or your mom might have hung around the, the kitchen, like yep. around the border of the kitchen. Yeah, and he's got some. <clears throat> David's been doing them for like 40 years. For, yep. for me, his claim to fame was he was the first artist with a one-man show at the Disney Shopping Village. That's right. That's right. He was the, he was the precursor to the Festival of the Arts. He was, yep. It was the Festival of David. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, while he was living there, he's painted all these scenes on Disney property, and I have three of them hanging here in my house. I think you've yep. all got at least one of them, but he's yeah he's he's got a number of them. He's got the uh, the the garden at the Polynesian. He's got a lagoon, uh, West Center Street, the water taxi. Um, so if you go to davidcoolidge.com, a number of people have asked where they could get that, and uh, they wrote to us and said they're working on getting the small ones up there, um, so that you can purchase that. And actually, I just checked now, and they are on there. Oh, the Swan Boat one. He's got the Swan Boat. Oh, as I have well. that. Nice about that. That's yeah, Swan Boat's me. really That's nice. So. Um, we want to let everybody know and check it out at davidcoolidge.com. Just click prints and then you can scroll down, click the one you like, and there's ordering options there. So I think most of them are around 50 bucks or something. So really, really great artwork. Um, hang on your home. All right. Uh, with that, uh, did we have a new t-shirt? How? I can't remember if we, we, we've, since we last talked, I mean, maybe we talked about the home of the big silver ball. I think we did that we one. Did that, well, as Brian said, that outer rim logo is gorgeous. So we're going to, mm. we're going to do that because it's a really unique piece. Perfect. Perfect. Will there be little holes it. in the shirt to put Mary Blair dioramas or. <laughs> uh, as always, you can check our shirt. That's at retro forward slash support us, which will take you right to our T public page. So a lot of good stuff on there. So, and we get the McFarkles, uh, Upcott Center, home of the big silver ball, and the Mojave Oil one is still up there as well, as long as uh, well as all of our other designs and everything. So, um, next month, I think we're gonna we're gonna stay on this uh, little ephemera trip and and talk about tickets. And I know Hal's got a whole bucket of different things that he wants to go through. We didn't get to it on this episode. When Brian had too much restaurant information to pack this into a three hour episode. So. <laughs> We will. We'll be back it's next month. One of my month favorite topics. So, hey, you know, I, it, it, like it, I'm from back when people used to go to restaurants. I thought you were going to have a quick ten to twenty minutes, and hey, here we are with an entire episode. So I love it. Uh, but I've got a pile here. JT, check this out. You're going to love this. Look, at, see the the pile. Oh here. wow! All different ephemera and. I have mine, mine and, here, but it's not as big as your pile. So. So we're gonna we're gonna go through all different ephemera. We're gonna go through the ticket history next month. How you've got, well, we know you've got drawers filled with things. So. <laughs> I have boxes and drawers yeah. and, yes, yeah. all kinds of stuff. So but uh, so we'll be back next month. So here's our that. challenge, everyone. Find the most unusual item in your collection. Oh, that's a great idea. And we'll, Most unusual ephemera, like pieces of paper yeah, or ticket like, stubs. You know, hot dog wrappers or some something that you weren't and, supposed and, to have. An old uneaten English walnut roll from <laughs> Liberty Tree. <laughs> Mickey Butter still Mickey frozen. Mickey Butter, yeah. <laughs> How, how, that's great. Todd's yeah. going to so, have brookies. That's what Todd's going to have. He's gonna have I'm gonna, I got one. I got one. I've still got a bunch left. Um, you laugh every time, Brian. I got one to have at least. I got the cookies, too. I could keep it going for the rest of the year, at least. Oh wow! Our whole whole lights just flickered. That was we weird. saw that. Okay, yeah. Your house is, is haunted. Haunted tonight. <laughs> the air deathly still. That's right. Uh, so if you do have, per house request, if you have anything odd or uh, the most obscure piece of ephemera that you can 
find. Send it to podcast at retrowdw.com. We'd love to see a photo of it. We'll talk about it on the air uh, and see. I've, I've got a couple weird ones here. Check this out. This is this is pretty rare. This will get it. I found this in my collection. Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom. A single attraction readmission ticket. Huh. I have never seen these before. You're so it's cash got cash that in, aren't you? I, I, well, it still says A through E. Uh, <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Operation. Uh, after the operation has resumed. So this must have been you were in line uh, and you could come back in, you know, because they couldn't give everybody an E ticket. There you go. So Space they gave Mountain went 101. Now what? And it's, it's what's funny is it says to this ride, but it doesn't have the attraction name on it. So it's. It's an honor know. system. It must be. It must be. So anyway, so one of my rare things, and I also have, uh, here's another one. My grandfather had a handicap plate, so we have the, huh, this is the oh, actual little handicap placard that you would drop in your dashboard with when you showed yours that you knew that you And if you dropped it on the ground, the helicopter might try to yeah. land there. <laughs> it's just a giant H. And it's, it's uh, stamped on the back, July 11th, 844 AM, 93. Was that for you guys' yellow Chevette? No, 93. That was 80. Oh, that was 93. Yeah, oh, that was yeah. okay, yeah. All right, one, one last interesting thing. Buick Century. <laughs> Since we're on the topic of food, though, when you were a child, you went to Boatwright's Dining Hall. There was different things they could give you. And this is the little plastic ruler that they would give you. Oh, fancy. I don't know. I, because you were going to build a boat. There oh, right. Yeah, that was, it's a boat building menu. place. Yes. Yeah. Clever. So, anyway. So those are a lot of different things we will talk about next month. So, uh, all right, gentlemen. Well, if everybody can give us a shout out, iTunes, a review if possible, appreciate it. Check us out on YouTube, link, love, subscribe, whatever it is that you do with those buttons. What is it? What is it, JT? Like, subscribe, on comment. YouTube, yeah, you want to subscribe to us and you want to yeah. click on the bell so we you get notified when we That's post right. things and go live. And or if we go live, yeah. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those social things that I keep forgetting we have. But, um, yeah, follow us along, and uh, we'll be talking to everybody soon. And we'll be back uh, hopefully mid-June sometime with a uh, home movie night. We've got some new ones that came in, and uh, we'll be getting those ready. And uh, we'll be posting a lot of new videos. As always, it's mo- Year of the Movie, which probably will be next year, Year of the Movie as well, and <laughs> Year of the How video. And, and uh, yeah, lots of stuff to do. So. All right. Well, every, thank you very much for listening uh, and appreciate everybody's support. And until then, we'll talk to you next month. With that, Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. 
Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities.